Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Sarah Montabano back to the program. She is a Young Voices contributor, and when she's not enjoying the snow, at least temporarily in Montana, uh, tell us about some of the other things that, that keep you busy, Sarah. Yeah, I am uh, also the education policy analyst at Alaska Policy Forum. Alaska is my home state, um, so I spend a lot of time following Alaska issues. Um, and other than that, I really love to read. I love baking. I, I just putter around the house and I have a great time. So, uh, speaking of Alaska, I have heard a lot of reference to Alaska with this being election season uh, concerning ranked choice voting. And in particular, I know that uh, there are some uh, political uh, political spokesmen here in Idaho, where I live, who are saying, hey, we could learn a lot from Alaska. We ought to follow their example. And and essentially what they're saying is ranked choice voting, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, saved Alaska from, uh, uh, oh, shoot, the former governor's name, just Sarah... Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin. What exactly right. is, is this, and, and why is it favored by those who, well, among other things, don't appear to like, you know, Sarah Palin? <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Alaska passed uh, ranked choice voting in 2020, that election, by about 1%, which is 3,700 votes or so. Um, Nevada is currently has this on the ballot. Um, in their version, it'll be a top five uh, general election. So the top five people in the primary will move on to the general. In Alaska, we have top four, but the premise is basically the same. Um, ranked choice voting proponents really like to say that it um, mitigates vote splitting, uh, minimizes strategic voting, reduces political polarization. And that's what I think your Idaho um, advocate is saying there is that it'll elect moderate candidates. But I want to say that Alaska's special election shows that's really not the case. So was is it safe to say that uh, uh, slightly left, to mo left of moderate candidates found it easier to, to gain office or to stay in office? Yeah, it, I feel like ranked choice voting doesn't necessarily have to favor one side or the other, but at least where it is being introduced, it tends to uh, promote uh, moderate candidates in the sense that they're Democratic candidates. Um, so what happened in Alaska's special election, uh, there were four candidates who made it from the top four primary, uh, Sarah Palin, former governor, Republican, Nick Begich, Republican, uh, Al Gross uh, was a nonpartisan uh, who decided to drop out before the general election. Um, so that really threw a wrench in predictions. And then Mary Poltola, the Democrat, got about 10 percent. And what happened in the general election was um, she earned a lot of votes and came in first. And she didn't um, she didn't have to be eliminated. And so the Republicans ended up splitting their votes between Palin and Begich. Uh, Begich was eliminated first. He had about 28%. So his votes were distributed among Palin and Peltola. And slightly more went to Peltola or went to Palin than Peltola. Um, but about 11,000 of those didn't vote at all for a second choice. And so had Palin gotten about half of those, she would have eventually won. Um, but Peltola did make enough. Now we have a Democratic senator from, or a representative from Alaska, 
And that's that's an unusual sentence. <laughs> I I can't tell you how much this this reminds me of when my sister and I would play games, board games, as kids. And she, being older and smarter than me, would uh, would change the rules mid game, especially if, if mm-hmm. I was if I was you know having a particularly good run at the game. Suddenly the rules would change, and I would find myself losing, you know, every dang yes. time. And and that's what this reminds me of. Mm-hmm. No, it, it's a really interesting thing because uh, ranked choice voting seems to um, really cause a lot of counterintuitive strategizing uh, that you have to do. You think you're playing the game right, and then it turns out you know you should have allocated your first choice vote differently. Um, and so I think that's what we're going to see a lot of in November, at least, because November we're pretty much rerunning the same race, except our fourth candidate is uh, the Libertarian candidate. Um, so I, I'm really curious to see if Alaskan voters both understand the process and understand the odd ways in which it should be used uh, to strategize effectively. Does this also make it difficult to tabulate the results of the election? Yes. So one of the interesting things about um, Alaska's ranked choice voting, it took about two weeks from when votes were submitted to find out the final tally. We had all the first choice votes and we knew, OK, Mary Paltola is in first, Palin second baggage is third, but we didn't know what the second choice votes were um, until it was, you know, mathematized on a little PDF, two page PDF at, you know, two weeks later at the end of August. Um, What's really interesting, though, is that the Alaska Division of Elections releases a cast vote record, uh, which is in a really uh, difficult to interpret computer programming um, format called JSON. I went to college for uh, computer science, and I'm I still have not uh, interpreted this, um, and so that means you know citizens aren't going to be able to verify this themselves unless they have that computer knowledge, uh, which I think is really difficult um, to foster trust in the system. You can't see how the votes are actually being tabulated. Wow. So who is it who pushes this? I, I'm curious, uh, you know, where does the ranked choice voting movement come from or, or who are the primary players in, in trying to get it introduced into states? Absolutely. Nationally, uh, organizations like Fair Vote uh, are very interested in ranked choice voting. They really um, find this a, a system that, you know, they say will promote moderate candidates and things like that, um, that there's no more errors usually. Uh, and so, you know, there's these organizations that I probably don't have to tell you are getting uh, boatloads of money from uh, various progressive organizations um, in in various states. Um, place these state-based organizations tend to be funded from national causes um, rather than local donations and fundraising like that. Um, yeah, and and Fairvote, you know, definitely has a perspective on <laughs> ring choice voting. Well, and, and as you point out in your article, this places a little extra burden, not just on uh, the candidates and the parties, but also the voters. You you have to start strategizing. OK, but if I vote like this, you know, how could it go? It seems like it, it takes something and complicates it when, when it really shouldn't be complicated, complicated rather. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with that. There's a paradox that ranked choice voting actually illustrates in the political science literature, um, you know, preferential voting. the way it should work is that ranking your favorite candidate first should only help them. It shouldn't be able to harm them, but ranked choice voting, ranking them first can actually harm their chances. Um, And so what we might end up seeing in November, um, you might 
choose to rank the weakest candidate of the other party as your first choice saying, well, you know, I'd like um, like the strongest opponent to be eliminated from the, the Republican Party. Um, you know, you could say, wow, we've got two Republicans, one Democrat. Um, let's, you know, try and make the, the weakest Republicans survive so that they will be knocked out in that, you know, kind of unsavory choice between the Democrat and the weakest Republican. Um, so that's that's going to be really interesting. Um, I, I wonder if this kind of strategizing is really going to be understood by voters um, to actually weaponize that kind of thing. Um, but it is going to be really, really interesting to watch. So are there any states other than Nevada that uh, that are, are considering putting this on the ballot and, and making this their system? Well, there's been a lot of chatter about it. Maine has had ranked choice voting for several years, I want to say since 2018. Um, and they they've um, you know, it's really complicated their elections. A lot of municipalities and cities are considering this, too, if they haven't already. Um, I think uh, this election cycle, there's 10 or 12 cities that are doing this. Um, but Nevada is the only state that's put it on their ballot um, this this go around. OK, I'm just I, I know that the, the talk is is going on in my home state of Idaho, where they are saying, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, this is really something we should consider. You make a very powerful case for why we should take a close look at it and then carefully carry it to the trash can and leave it there. I, I don't see this improving <laughs> things in, in any meaningful way. Um, anything else mm-hmm. that I mean, we've got about a minute left here, but is there anything else on your radar screen that uh, that you would like our listeners to, to be aware of as, as we come closer? I mean, we're two weeks away from the midterms. Want to prognosticate for us at all, Sarah? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I just want to remind voters that if you are in Nevada considering this um, on your ballot or or in you're in the states and you're shaping the debate in your home state, just try to remember that the most interesting ballot balloting system is not uh, necessarily the best one. Uh, you'd like to voting to be very simple. You'd like to make it easy for everyone to participate in this democratic system, or else it's favoring the you know more interested, more educated, more organized groups um, that are they're going to take the time to actually do all of this strategizing. Um, so that's that's something I'd think about and and just go out and vote in the midterms, please. It's very important. Yeah, I don't want to sound like a denier or anything, but I get nervous when it takes more than a, a night to count up and tabulate the votes. This is the kind of thing I'd like to see resolved quickly, and it sounds like this adds some complexity Two that weeks. actually adds time. Yeah. Not sure that I'm interested in that. Sarah, thank you so much for visiting with us. Again, we're talking with Sarah Montalbano. She's the education policy analyst at Alaska Policy Forum, also a Young Voices contributor. Where can we find you on social media? Uh, you can visit my Twitter handle at Sarah Montalbano. The O is a zero. Thank you. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome Kenneth Shrupp back to the show. Kenneth, you're going to be a familiar voice for some of our listeners, but for those who are meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Hi, Brian. It's a pleasure to be on again. Uh, My name is Kenneth Shrupp, and I'm a contributor with Young Voices, writing on myriad of issues, uh, ranging from culture to politics, business, economics, or education. 
Um, I'm also editor-in-chief of the California Review, which is a California-based journal on state policy. Very nice. And I'm looking at an article you've written for Real Clear Education. Universal cash deposits will ruin private K-12 like universal loans did to college. And I got to say, Kenneth, I... Yeah, I feel like I'm up on top of stuff. But I've not, I have not heard of universal cash deposits before. Can you uh, bring me up to speed? What exactly does that mean? Well, Brian, I think there's probably a term you have heard of a lot before uh, that is related to this, which is universal education savings accounts. That's oh. what most of the education reformers are calling or peddling them as. However, a universal education savings account sounds like you're going to be able to make tax-free savings. Those already exist in the form of 529s. When, when I say universal cash deposits, I'm only more accurately describing this new system that's being proposed by which students receive somewhere in the range of five to $15,000 from the state to pay for educational expenses if you don't send your kid to public school. Okay. Yes, you're right. I have heard of this only by other words. Now, you are making the case here, though, that this uh, may actually be a bad thing. Let me ask you this. First of all, can can we differentiate when I hear people talk about, hey, the money should follow students rather than just the system? Um, does this fly in the face? Does it fly in the face of, of that? Or is that what they're attempting to do here? Uh, I think. Okay, well, that, this is what they're attempting to do, but let's also realize that most people pay far less in state taxes than they receive in the cost of education for their children, right? The average uh, money that a state will spend on a public school student is about $15,000. I'm just using California data here. Uh, whereas the average household pays only $5,000 in taxes. So for each kid, you're, if, if you think that people should get the money back that they're saving from uh, not sending their children to the public school system. It should be more like they're receiving uh, what they've paid up to the amount that they've paid in taxes rather than a much larger subsidy that will increase inflation for whatever is being subsidized. Ah, so let's talk about what's, what is the, the big danger involved in, in these uh, universal cash deposits? I know anybody you know, loves the idea of cash, free, free money, but uh, tell me what the, what the downsides are. Well, um, as, as our good friend Milton Friedman once said, there's no such thing as free lunch. There are two major threats posed by these universal cash deposits. Uh, first, it's just going to make school very expensive. We already have a lot of data on what happens when you create universal programs like this. Prices skyrocket and enrollment doesn't actually increase much at all, uh, if anything. Um, Arizona, for example, more I believe the data is 80% of those who are uh, rece receiving these have signed up for the universal cash deposit plan that was just put into law there already were outside of the pri of the public school system. So this is just people taking who already have money and are going to use this money to spend on other education related things um, or, or, dri or drive spending elsewhere in their lives, which is fine. But it's not like it's dramatically increasing enrollment. Uh, second of all, our our private school system is already pushed to the brink. Uh, COVID during COVID, private schools were the only ones that remained open, so parents flooded to them. They're extremely long wait lists. Tuition is already skyrocketing. If you create a subsidy that is that is as high or even higher than the average tuition for a private school, then you, you what you're going to naturally see is the prices rocket skyrocket out of control if you are a fully 
enrolled private school and you charge $10,000 a year and suddenly everybody is getting a 10,000 subsidy, you can raise your prices oh, yeah. to $20,000 without any impact to to your actual students because you're not taking any more money out of their pockets. You know they're getting it anyway. Your school's already full. <laughs> so you might as well, what ends up happening is schools will increase the tuition by even more than the subsidy because the subsidy makes it affordable for more people. Wow. Well, I and when, um, when you put it yeah. that way too, I'm now I'm seeing the parallel between just like we saw when universal college loans were made available and you know people started taking out student loans. What happened to the cost of tuition? Higher and exactly. higher. Exactly. It all start. It all started when when you you created these universal loan programs. You you can't do that. You can't just give out money to even very wealthy families. Give everybody the same amount of money and expect prices not to change. Um, the other, so here's the other problem. Right now we have very there's some strings attached on what you can spend this money on. Why do people assume that it's always going to be Republicans in control of the states that are giving out these funds? Do we really think that someday Democrats, for example, might control take control of Arizona and then create rules and stipulations on these for these private schools to become hooks on this public money? They'll have no choice but to surrender and do whatever the state Democrats say. They will be able to. They will have to teach whatever the state Democrats want. Wow. Okay, no, I'm I'm hearing you. Now I have to ask Kenneth, just for the sake of those who are going, well, are you against school choice? Are you for or against school choice? I, I've always kind of figured you were kind of a school I, choice guy. I, I am I am extremely against the control that unions have over our schools. I don't like the Department of Education. I don't like the centralized control of of education through controlling the books, controlling the funding. I don't like any of that. I think students should have far more choice in their education um, and what form that choice takes. I think privates, I think pri if you want to pay for private school, you can pay for private school. Private schools are, are relatively affordable and relatively good value because they can only spend what parents are willing to pay. <laughs> you can, I think charter schools should be a fantastic option for most people. They, the, the average for-profit charter school gets only $9,800 per year from the government. That's about half. That's, well, that's not about half. Let's, let's say the average public school sends about $16,000 per student. They get a, a very, much smaller amount than the average public school gets, or even the ab how much the average private school spends in tuition, which is $12,000, while having some of the best educational outcomes in the country. So if we really are for school choice, we would be, in fact, to advocate for shutting down these union schools in the inner cities that receive all this federal funding to keep the unions afloat and send kids to horrible educations and open up charter schools in their place that cost less and do almost as well, if not better than the private schools. I'm sorry, I had to pause for a moment because off in the distance I could hear howling from the teachers' unions. No, you can't do that. What you're saying, though, makes perfect sense. And and again, without subsidizing, without getting government more involved in, in education or at least deeper involved than it already is, I think uh, I think you make an excellent point here. Uh, this is this sounds like though it might be a hard sell for uh, I'm going to say conservatives or people who are on the more conservative side of things who are are just looking for a way to um, to to find some choice. I can see where they would be tempted and maybe not see some of the undesirable effects that come along with this. So I'll, I'll I'll be cynical here and I'll say, look, the the demographic that matters most in elections in America for the last few decades has been suburban 
parents, especially suburban women. And if you're going out and you're saying, I'm going to give you $10,000 to take your kid out of the public school that's teaching things that maybe you don't want them to teach or just aren't very good, you're going to be able to buy their vote. I think there's an element of that. And I also think that the private schools probably would want to advocate for money to boost this, to, to boost their budgets and, and do whatever they want with without any actual strings attached. Of course, they're going to want this. Yeah. But I, the consequences, the long term consequences to private education are not worth it. The long term consequences to the cost of education overall for K through 12 would be debilitating. I, I don't see what's conservative at all about this. Conservatives are supposed to be like these elephants that think, that see into the future, that consider consequences. And we're not thinking about the consequences. No. You, you make an excellent point. Again, we are talking with Kenneth Shrupp. And Kenneth, for the sake of people who want to uh, to follow your work, uh, tell us again, where can they follow your writing? Well, the easiest way to follow my writing would be to follow my Twitter. Uh, I wish I were a little more active, uh, but maybe it's better that I'm not. Uh, my Twitter is Kenneth Shrupp. Uh, sp- last name is spelled S-C-H-R-U-P-P. Very good. Nice to talk to you once again. Thanks. Thank you, Brian. Have a great day. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome back to the program Mike. Is it Viola or Viola? Viola. 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 Mike Viola. <laughs> I meant to ask you that before we jumped on here. Anyway, he's with the Foundation for Economic Education as well as being a Young Voices contributor. Um, I got to tell you, Fee has been responsible for shedding a lot of light on, on how I understand the world. Tell me what you do for them. Yeah, so I'm the head of analytics at Fee. So I'm in charge of figuring out uh, who among our target demographics we're reaching and how we get that message in front of you know as many more young eyes as possible. Nice. They do such a wonderful job. So, you know, we'll, we'll include a link to uh, to your article and hopefully people will go further than that link and actually check out uh, Fee for themselves. Let's talk a little bit about the article that I see you wrote for um, this is centersquare.com. Republicans should follow Florida's lead on ESG investing. It's just within the last year or so that I have started to hear about and comprehend ESG. For those hearing it for the first time, what does that refer to? Sure. So ESG investing, it's short for environmental social governance investing. Um, It's a bit of an ambiguously defined concept that at one point meant using those three factors as, you know, a part of many other investment factors in figuring out potential risks in an investment. Like if, say, you're investing in a company, you think maybe they're unusually prone to environmental risks, that should be a, a part of of what you consider before you invest in them. Um, However, that and sort of the progressive politics behind those letters um, have unfortunately gotten a bit mashed together. And as I discussed in the article, it's now bled a bit into public retirement plans. Oh, so so what does that look like? I mean, uh, when I hear those that collection of letters, I think, oh, this is a social credit kind of score. is, is that is that pretty I mean that may be oversimplifying, but does that begin to to approach what ESG is trying to accomplish? To some extent, I think it's turned into that. It's turned in so 
let me give a little example. Um, oftentimes you hear that S score. You might think that means, you know, do are these companies that are involved in the communities around them? Are they, you know, giving something back beyond profit? I am, I'm not a stakeholder capitalism type guy, but I look favorably on companies that give back to, to the world that, that they operate in. Um, but oftentimes you delve into the social requirements of the ESG mutual stock funds, and sometimes they're banning investments in uh, firearms producers or, um, you know, in uh, companies that produce, say, you know, products that are not consistent with a progressive mindset, but don't technically speaking have a, an, an objective pro or con to society, right? Okay. Um, it's primarily that progressive opinion that is driving what is or isn't a uh, good social investment as opposed to anything objective. Okay. I can see, though, where that could get tricky, like in a big hurry. Um, so, where where does this originate? Who Who is the... Who are the driving forces that, that push this kind of, uh, of uh, mindful investing? So the concept has been around for decades, and it's meant different things to different people. It's been a pretty innocent, good faith process for a lot of mutual fund managers for a lot of that time period. I actually, before I worked at Fee, I worked in the private sector in finance at a company that was doing a lot of data around these ESG factors. And a lot of the the investments that we covered that that use some sort of ESG process were indeed doing so for financial return, you know, risk return assessment purposes, and not for this more ideological sense. But we've seen in the last few years, and I think this really escalated in 2020. Um, those viewpoints take a more ideological mindset, and that has particularly come out of some of the biggest asset managers in the U.S. Um, BlackRock and Vanguard are the ones that uh, people like to point fingers at the most often. Um, but sometimes it even includes uh, you know, other household names like J.P. Morgan Chase or Morgan Stanley, where you, know, you may have those funds in your retirement plans, maybe invested them and not know it, and uh, in their fund documentation, it includes sort of um, wording implying that they will be screening out investments for some of these um, environmental or social purposes, um, which oftentimes have an ideological tinge. It doesn't mean they actually do it, but a lot of these fund companies feel the need to appease people who want to see that sort of thing. But um, you rarely see that appeasement go the other way, right? Like, there's not a lot of secular mutual funds that um, excuse themselves from investing in, say, abortion or you know other more controversial areas that would appeal to conservatives. So, um, th this some of the, uh, some of them I think are really driven by personal ideology. Some are driven by um, being more afraid of upsetting the left than upsetting the right. Wow. That, it just sounds like it, it makes things very tricky, like creates creates a lot of hazard right. where, the, where there doesn't need to be some. Now, Florida, as you mentioned, has actually stood up, though, and said no. What to, What's the substance of, of their pushback against this? Yeah, so Ron DeSantis, um, he's a blustery guy, but he made a secretly nuanced <laughs> the sort of move in fighting against um, some of the excesses of ESG. So... Um, a few months ago, 
he indicated that he was going to ban any what he calls non-pecuniary factors from affecting the state pension plan. So what that means is when analysts at the state pension plan are making an investment, they are not to include any sort of you know, social factor that they that they deem relevant or, or to deal the, to look at the underlying political issues um, that go into it, but to only look at legitimate components that affect risk and or return of a potential investment. So, I mean, that's basically doing what investments are supposed to be doing, right? But um, curiously, while he did sort of use, I think, ESG as a uh, catch-all term and some of his public messaging about it, the uh, language of the text does not actually ban the use of environmental or social or governance factors, which when you take ideology out of it, there are indeed occasions where those may be relevant to risk return, right? Like there are certain great environmental risks that say if a company is, say, dumping waste improperly, you would think in the long term might indeed affect their risk return profile. Sure. And governance, I would think is a no-brainer that um, probably didn't need a whole new ESG movement to tell you that you want to make sure that companies are run properly when you invest in them. So um, he essentially left it open to those factors when they are, in fact, pecuniary, that is affecting the financial risk or return. Wow. Um, yeah. Now, so it's interesting because I think his response was very effective, but um, he also avoided a big mistake that I think a lot of red states are running into. Uh, they got a little too excited um, to, uh, you may have heard that it was in August, um, 19 Republican state attorney generals sent a letter to um BlackRock, the, the biggest asset manager in the U.S., specifically to its CEO, Larry Fink. Um, and so there they insisted that they were engaging in monopolistic practices. Um, they were alleging kind of an inconsistency between Fink's public statements. He's a, a pretty hardcore climate activist. And, um, you know, they noted that they're, uh, they considered BlackRock to essentially be hostile to fossil fuel producing states. Um, since then, a number of those states, Texas, West Virginia, Louisiana, South Carolina, and I'm sure there are others I'm missing, um, have gone further. They've labeled BlackRock as a fossil fuel boycotter, mm. and they've removed all of their investments from their state pension plans. Um, while that sounds like they're taking a hard stand, it's not really a reality. Um, I mean, BlackRock actually um, has been a major investor in the Texas oil industry, regardless of um, whatever their public statements are. They put over $100 billion in the Texas energy industry. Um, and taking the biggest asset managers' plans out of, or excuse me, their funds out of those states' pension plans will actually just leave people in, invested in those plans with fewer options. So it's essentially, um, in some sense, they're, they're essentially just doing reverse ESG, right? Like they're using anti-ESG in a, as DeSantis would put it, a non-pecuniary sense. And they may be indirectly punishing their state's own residents and, and their financial returns on their retirement money. Um, DeSantis 
smartly avoided that. Interesting. Well, it, yeah. it's making me think of the old, you can't fight fire with fire. And, and I think that bears out in what you're telling us here uh, yeah. when, when it comes to ESG. Uh, thanks again. We're talking with Mike Viola. Uh, Mike, tell people where they can follow your writings and follow your work. For sure. So uh, probably the easiest way is to follow me on Twitter at MF underscore Viola. Um, Sometimes I some some shorts I've written for fee will also appear on the Foundation for Economic Education YouTube channel. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today. I'm very happy to uh, welcome Jack Rollett back to the show. Uh, Jack, you are in Great Britain. Maybe tell us just a little bit about yourself, and then you and I have got some really interesting stuff to talk about today. Well, yeah, I, I'm Jack, and I'm a politics obsessive and political commentator from the UK. And when I'm not appearing on esteemed shows such as this, I'm uh, studying politics and international relations. You are exactly the guy I need to talk to because I'm I'm trying to stay abreast of what's happening. It seems like just a couple of weeks ago, we had a uh, Young Voices UK contributor on talking about Liz Truss, who uh, had just become the new prime minister and uh, just kind of anticipating what, what we might look forward to under her, uh, her uh, role as prime minister. And now in the last couple of days, I see she has resigned and there is now a new prime minister. Uh, and I don't know for sure how to say his name. Is it Rishi Sunak? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, Rishi Sunak, yeah. What happened? Why the change? Well, I think I think there's so there's two key factors here. There's firstly the fact that Liz Truss, so the prime minister who's just left and been replaced by Rishi Sunak, she didn't really have the characteristics required to match her quite ambitious set of policy proposals. So she came into office saying that growth had been really weak in Britain, that productivity was poor, that we had a sort of crisis on the supply side in terms of the inability to build new housing and infrastructure. But in order to change the orthodoxy, you have to have a pretty, you have, you have to be quite a talented politician. You have to be a good communicator. You have to be a good party manager. You have to be able to command confidence in the country and among your parliamentary party. And Liz Truss, unfortunately, was not able to do any of those things. She's quite a wooden performer when she speaks. She appointed people to her cabinet who were diametrically opposed to her on different policy issues. And she didn't sort of try and bring the party back together after what was quite a damaging uh, and disunifying uh, leadership contest over the summer. And the consequence of that was that when, when she went into office and she tried to bring about this radical change, there wasn't the support within the party and the country to sort of go through the difficult period of upheaval that was brought about by going through that period of radical change. Wow. So we had, uh, we, well, we had, we had the mini budget. So we had a sort of a fiscal event and she pushed forward a whole bunch of unfunded tax cuts. And we had uh, uh, yields on, on government debt sort of went up dramatically. We had the value of sterling against the dollar plummeted and we very nearly reached parity with the dollar and so the confidence just drained away and once you've lost the confidence uh, on the economy it's very hard to get it back and so it sort of became inevitable that she was going to go at that point so what can you tell me about uh, sunak what what is his uh, pedigree and his his uh, rise to to this office 
So he really came to prominence uh, just before the COVID pandemic started. He was sort of put in place as Chancellor of the Exchequer, responsible for the country's finances. And the first real impression that people had of him over here was that he paid people's wages, essentially, during the COVID lockdowns through a, a scheme known as furlough, paid 80% of people's wages. And so for a long time, he was actually the most popular politician in the country. People loved him because they felt that he'd put his arms around them during this unprecedented crisis. And he was talked about for a long time as being the natural successor to Boris Johnson were he to fall. But then we move forward to earlier this year in the spring, he puts forward a budget and it doesn't go very well. There's a lot of controversy about his tax status, about whether he holds a US green card still, and about his wife's tax affairs as well. And so against the backdrop of this cost of living crisis, having this very wealthy man embroiled in this tax drama, and then people feeling that actually the budget itself didn't go far enough to support people with their energy bills and the rising cost of living, sort of dented his reputation. And so by the time he got to the summer, the first time round with the leadership contest, he was sort of not in a position to be able to win over the hearts and minds of the conservative members in the country. And he was always destined to lose at that point. But over the summer, he kept uh, warning that Liz Truss's plans would cause interest rates to rise, would cause mortgage payments to rise, would tank, um, the well, well, would increase the yields on government debt. And he's sort of been proved right with all of those warnings. And so when Liz Truss fell last week, he seemed then the natural person to go to to replace her and sort of get us out of this mess that we're in. Now, I'm sorry that I have to ask this question, but there's a little conspiracy theorist in the back of my head that says, does this uh, does this young man have any connections to the World Economic Forum? Well, Rishi Zunak. Yes. Well, I think he's he's sort of considered to be someone who's more associated with a, a sort of more fiscally conservative approach. So he, he would have more respect for the, the WEF and the OECD and, and those sorts of organizations. But I don't think there's any sort of conspiracy here. What's mm-hmm. what's really happened is that is that Liz Truss didn't have the personal characteristics to be able to push through her policy agenda and, and wasn't able to manage the party effectively. And actually, what's pretty significant is, is I think both of them their approach is different, but their understanding of where the country should be is is pretty similar. They're both deregulatory conservatives, low tax conservatives, small state conservatives. It's just the sort of approach day to day and the kind of calmness that Rishi Sunak brings that, that really differs him from Liz Truss. And, and for the sake of those who, who don't live in the UK, help us understand what are the major challenges right now that the average citizen there is facing? I know uh, I've, the last few people I've talked to in, in the UK have said heating bills. <laughs> Our heating bills are, are getting outrageous right now. Yeah, so we, we have a real crisis with heating bills. So even though the government has stepped in and put a cap on the per unit price of electricity here, uh, the average uh energy bill for a family has doubled in the space of the past year. It's gone from about £1,200 to £2,500. So that's a big increase, and people are really struggling with that. But we've also got inflation, as I know you're struggling with in the US. We've got the price of bread is up nearly 40%, pasta up about 30%. These sort of staples, the basic foodstuffs have gone up so much in price. So it is really the cost of living is the main thing here, and how you can then solve that 
But the, the problem is that there's no real unity in the Conservative Party about the direction that now needs to be taken. So you have some people saying, well, there's a real shortage of workers, so let's bring in more immigrants. And then you have other people in the Conservative Party saying, no, no, we need to be training British people. We shouldn't be bringing more immigrants in. You have the same divisiveness over housing and um, infrastructure. And so and, and where you should sort of rise taxes and where you should cut spending. There's so many arguments now. There's no real consensus about how we face the challenges before us and how we bring the cost of living down. And that's going to make Rishi Sunak's job really hard. Interesting. Well, with his background in finance, maybe this is something that uh, he's particularly well suited for, you know, the right man for the right time. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I think he's he's you need you do exactly as you say, you need someone who's the right person at the right time. And I certainly wouldn't have supported him in in karma times. But I think he, he's been at the Treasury in the UK for two years. He understands the ins and outs of economic policy. He understands the markets incredibly well. And we've already seen today that the, the pound is up and the yields um, on government debt are falling. So we're already starting to see that easing a little bit. And he's brought in some continuity by continuing by allowing Jeremy Hunt, who's the current chancellor, to continue being in charge of the finances. So that's calmed the market as well. He is a sort of responsible adult. You know, he's, he's the responsible adult face of the Conservative Party with that background in finance. And as you say, that puts him in a, in a position to calm the markets now. So, Jack, how does the prime minister um, interact with uh, with royalty now i mean king charles is now um the the head of the the royal family uh, how how will they work together so there's the the king kind of is it takes a hands-off approach it's a constitutional monarchy so they don't, they don't interfere the royals in in day-to-day politics but the king appointed rishi sunak as prime minister today he goes and, and went and met king charles and king charles did but the, it's sort of a formality that he brings him into office the their their sort of interactions they have uh every week there's the prime minister has an audience with the monarch and sort of explains what's going on with the country and the monarch can ask various questions about that but as i say king charles sort of he will take a hands-off approach he's not going to be interfering in the the day-to-day politics of the country it just doesn't really happen the royal family are more interested in sort of dealing with their charitable causes and campaigning for sort of causes like that rather than big p politics i appreciate you explaining that for me and it's just simply i'm just not familiar with it and i know with the with the queen's passing here a few weeks ago and and there's been a lot of changes and so it seemed like a good time to ask and and just get a little better understanding of how that works um thanks again for for, for being our guest for people who wish to to follow your work where is the the best place for them to follow your writing or to follow you perhaps on social media well, you can find me on Twitter at Jack underscore Nostalgic, and you can find all my latest appearances. I'm on Talk TV and Times Radio here in the UK, and I write in various places as well about British politics primarily. So that's where you can find me. Well, I appreciate you adding your voice to our other Young Voices contributors, and especially appreciate you helping me better understand the situation there in Great Britain. Have a great day. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. 